So, <clears throat> hope everybody had a, a good lunch, good time to, to reflect. And again, you know, hopefully that we did have some time to pray and reflect. Uh, maybe a deeper encounter with the Lord, or a desire at least when we leave here to spend more time in prayer. Uh, one of the questions that one of the, the dads asked was, you know, how can as parents, and I know many of you are parents, uh, to to better be present to and love and see and delight your kids. And I'm going to give you, I've been talking about this a lot lately, i give you a suggestion. If you want to learn how to be a great parent, particularly dads, how to be a great dad, I'm going to tell you a great tool. And some of you may know this tool, some of you may not, but who knows what happened this week on August the 10th that made a lot of kids very happy. Bluey. Bluey. Who said that? That's right. Season three of Bluey came out. So, how, how many of you know what Bluey is? All right. Some good people. So anyhow, if you have Disney Plus, it's this Australian cartoon about a family of dogs. I'll show you an episode, but we got we got talking to do. And it's, it's they're these little Australian shepherd dogs, the dad's bandit, the mom's chili, and they have two little girls, Bluey and, B- and Bingo. Bingo's the cutest. <laughs> but watch it. This is how, this is what God the Father is. I'm, I'm working actually on a talk on this, particularly the way Bandit spends time with, delights in, and plays with his children. Uh, these are going to be healthy dogs when they grow up. <laughs> not going to be peeing on carpets. Shedding everywhere. So again, why, why are you telling me to watch a show for kids? It's for parents too. You can start with the first episode. It's called um, Magic Xylophone to see it. And the, the characters progress. There are a lot of good ones. The best one is from season two called Sleepy Time. I'm serious. Look at that. How many people seen Sleepy Time? Have y'all seen that? How many maybe cried or teared up when it came on? Look, you're lying if you saw it and you didn't. I've seen grown men cry for that. And then season three, Pass the Parcel. If you haven't watched Pass the Parcel, watch that one. Anyhow, that's just my suggestion for being a parent. So we, we, we've got to the point now, like the Samaritan woman, where we've let the Lord see us. We've encountered him. Hopefully, for this encounter, we, we, we come to healed, purified, established in our identity. Just a caveat, though, that this is good, and what I'm talking about is good in this prayer experience, but we, A, often need other things, and this is sort of what we're going to talk about today. I'm not saying that Jesus is enough, but we know we need friends and family and co-workers to be able to see us. We need safe places where we can bring our stuff in particular, if your stuff is big enough, particularly if there's some trauma, therapy, 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 counseling, counseling, counseling. Do not be afraid. We're not in 1950, all right? It should, everyone could benefit from this. So please bring your stuff to professional, particularly if you, you need to. Also know that in general, healing is not instantaneous. It's kind of like when Jesus healed the, the, the guys and People were seen like trees. It's a gradual thing. Um, And it takes time, and we have to be patient and respond to the Lord's healing. 
And even if the healing's great, you, you, you can't say, well, I'm only going to get out there and start doing things whenever I'm totally healed. For those who are involved in sports, you know that, that they're, you could be hurt and you could be on injured reserve or they're physically unable to play. But eventually you get good enough where you can go back on the field. Are you 100%? No. Is anyone ever 100%? No, they're not. And so we can't wait to start loving other people until we're 100%. We, we've got to be able to go out there when we are sufficiently healed and have done the work and let the Lord see us to be able to start working in others. And so this is kind of what we're about. What's the next part? First part, we got our, we got our stuff, we got our shame, we don't want anyone to see. We got our own selves we hide from other people. We counter Jesus. We allow him to show us the Father's love. We live in the gaze of the Father. And then the passage is, what's next? Is the Samaritan woman goes out and begins to share the good news with others. With the other people. So that they want to go and encounter Jesus. And granted, this is sort of a story of evangelization. But I think we could also say that she goes and to give back what she's received, to be able to see the people around her, to love them, to, to show them Christ, to encounter them. She doesn't keep it to herself, nor does she go back to her house and ruminate about everything that's went on. Oh, maybe, maybe I didn't reveal everything to Jesus. Maybe Jesus was judging me. She doesn't do that. She goes out and shares what she's received. I think one great sort of experience in prayer might be reflecting on what happened after the hemorrhaging woman. After 12 years of living with this, this, this disease, what it was like to go and encounter others. How she shared the God good news. I'd also like to see what she had to tell her doctor. <laughs> 12 years. But still, share it. And then let's look at how even someone who has seen and encounters the Lord and encounters their mission and are healthy, Mary, after Mary encounters the, the, the angel, what does she do? She doesn't sit around and start worrying about what's going to happen. I don't know. How am I going to be the mother of God? How is this going to happen? Is he going to die? She doesn't. She goes out to serve Elizabeth. Out. It's an exterior movement. And so the same has to go with us. Once the Lord, we encounter the Lord, we begin living in the light, we begin knowing our own identity, we are able to go out to others. We can't see other people until we allow ourselves to be seen, until we are able to see others. It's the blind leading the blind. It's the broken leading the broken. And so we've got to be willing not just to share the gospel, but more importantly, with words, with our actions, with seeing others, with loving them, with delighting in them, with listening to them and spending time with them. We need and we've got as students, you have students who are great, great in desire to be seen and to be loved. And we're going to talk about this um, a little bit later. Not, not too much later, but just a little bit. But, you know, you say, well, Father, isn't it enough for God to look at us? 
Isn't it enough for him to gaze and to heal us? Yeah, it is. But the fact of the matter is, he didn't set it up that way. He gave us the church. He gave us all the ability to love others. I say this all the time. Why do we have the commandment to love? Because Jesus was like, I got nothing else to command him to do. No, he wants us to love others because he will love others through us. Nine times out of ten, God does not act directly. Every time you see God acting directly in the Old Testament, there are a bunch of other times he sends the prophet. He uses us to communicate his healing, his word, his sight. My favorite quote of all time, which I, I quote all the time, is from Father Jacques Philippe. And, and it's from his book, I think, Interior Freedom. And I'll, I'll give it, and it sums it up better than I ever could. We urgently need the mediation of another's eyes to love ourselves and accept ourselves. The eyes may be those of a parent, a friend, a spiritual director, but above all, they are those of God our Father. The look in his eyes is the purest, truest, tenderest, most loving, and most hope-filled in the world. It's a beautiful quote. The Lord mediates his love, he mediates his vision through us. We've got to be out there seeing others and, and enabling them to love themselves. But first, we've got to know that we're loved and lovable, and that's what overcoming shame does. That's what living in the gaze of the Father. We know that we are beloved sons and daughters. We are the eyes of the Father. And, and you do it, of course, to people around you. You do it to your children. But here, I'm speaking to teachers and administrators. You have over a thousand young women who we know, most of them are living in shame, are broken, and desiring of love, attention, and they want to be seen. And the chances are they're not being seen at home. If they got boyfriends, they're probably not seeing them. They're just looking for one thing normally. And this opportunity in these small interactions, in ways that you can't even imagine, it's not even what you say to be able to see them and to communicate the, the love of the Father. And, and this is the need to pay attention. Sometimes I said, hey, it can be really disguised. Oh, this person looks like they have it all together. But no, they don't. No one has it all together. And sometimes there are young women who are crying out for attention. And you gotta know what to look for. Sometimes it's difficult, but sometimes that attention-seeking behavior takes the form of something we're talking about at the table, drama. We all know, if you're teaching in a school of 1,000 girls, there's going to be drama. When I did my campus ministry in my office, I would see, as I said, often five or six hours a day, a little sign. It said drama, and it had a little circle around it, and they X through it. My office is a no drama zone. And it became noted that you did, no one brought their drama to me because I wasn't going to take it. I talked to you, talked to your heart. And what was very effective, this is a little suggestion for counselors. I, I bought a bottle of, you know that medicine you take whenever you get motion sickness drama mean? <laughs> and I kept it at my desk and someone would come in with their drama and I'd say, one second, I take it. Here, hold this. 
she'd hold it and I'd say, I want you to read what that says. Draw me. I said, no, let's break it up. Drama mine. Your drama, it's your drama. Claim your drama. I don't want any of it. Drama, it's not drama yours. It's not drama father's. It's drama mine. You can have your own drama, but keep it to yourself. That's a great investment. It's about $5 for a bottle of drama mine. That's, that's a great takeaway for today. Now, if all the teachers have it, you, then maybe they're going to know where it's coming. That sounds good. Just remember, just like, no, no drama. Anyhow, I granted, a lot of the times we may be able to spot it in others, these signs of needing attention and shame and insecurity because we've seen it in ourselves. Uh, hopefully, we've seen it. Oh, I've done that before. I was like that when I was in high school. And the truth is, yeah, the shame and the ways that we seek attention, uh, the, the young people today are doing the same way, the same roots. The problems are not really significantly different. I mean, it's all looking for attention. But I'll tell you, things are different today. And I'm not one, oh, things are terrible. Because, no, I mean, the world's always a terrible place. That's why Jesus came to redeem us. Shame's always been there. Insecurity's always been there. Drama's always been there. But, but it is different. And, and I'm going to say, and, and things began to change in 2007. Who knows what happened in 2007? The iPhone. The iPhone. Oh, it's so clear. So I started working in campus ministry in 2010. So as someone who was in college there was born in 1990. That means that in 2008, they started college. They went to their grade school and high school and their first year of college without an iPhone and mostly without social media. And their first iPhone didn't have video. And so... Was there drama? Was there shame? Yeah, but I tell you, the students were different. A lot more confident. A lot more confident. But then, when I left, or today, the student who starts college today was born in 2004. 18 years old. They know nothing but the phone. And their parents saying, you're bothering me, here's the phone. Go look at it. And, and what they have, and the Instagram. And I'm not trying to say these things are evil. But I'm saying technology changes the way we relate and we view ourselves and, and, and the drama that's created and the insecurity. It's real. And I, I, mean, I saw it. was interesting. I saw the difference between the end of the millennials and the beginning of Generation Z. Same sort of problems, but a lot different. And it really is because I think of the smartphone uh, and, and the, 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 the social media and a marked difference in self-knowledge, shame, and insecurity. And it's not just from that. I mean, as a result of it, we live in a hypersexualized, pornified culture where there's more objectification, where women don't feel safe, particularly young women don't feel safe. You see the impact, pornography, uh, and the way, and so a lot of times they retreat behind the walls because of that, not even because of shame. Sometimes they feel they have to to give into it, or the ideas that get put in their heads. It's, it's the whole psychology, we're not really into that today. I'm not getting into it. What I want to do though, is I think we all sort of understand what I'm talking about. We've talked about the shame and we see it and we could probably tell stories. But what I want to do is convey a few stories today 
of young women that I've worked with um, that have experienced shame. I've gotten permission to use these stories, and I'm speaking in broad strokes. So even if someone in here knew these people, which you don't, um, you wouldn't know who I'm talking about. Um, and, and I think it typifies not only like how shame manifests itself, but how healing is possible. And, and I'm talking about ways that I've been the instrument of sight, and I'm sure all of you here could probably tell your own stories. This one young woman who, we, we had a cafe at the student center, and so people would come in all the time. I mean, there'd be hundreds of people who'd come in, students, throughout the day to get their coffee, to sit and study. And some of them were big personalities you knew, but there were some who you didn't, that were really on the peripheries. And this one young woman, I remember sort of seeing her, but never talking to her. Now granted, I have RBF. I can't help it. I'm intimidating. I'm tall. I'm mean looking. And so people don't like to talk to me all the time. The confident ones usually will talk to me. Maddie, Maddie Tadfred had no problem talking to me. None. Abby Pontier didn't either, for those who remember Abby. So they weren't scared. So y'all know these people. But this young woman, like, wasn't scared of me. She was always in the, the back the side. And she always waved her dress, big, thick glasses. And I'm not saying that you're filled with shame if you have big, thick glasses. I'm not saying that. But just the way she carried herself, her hair covering her. And then she finally went to, in her sophomore year, one of these uh, focus conferences. We had a fellowship of Catholic University students. Uh, and she went to one of these and just had this experience in prayer where the Lord saw her. So things began changing, and she became coming to see me for spiritual direction, sort of letting, started talking to others instead of just by herself. Went away for the summer projects, and was started dealing with her shame. And she'll tell you that she had a lot of shame from personal struggles. We brought her to the light and realized she wasn't going to be judged for it. And it's a common struggle, and it's all right. You know, we're human. And then things began to change. And it's the way that she's sort of coming to me for spiritual direction, walking. All of a sudden, she started going to Bible studies and then connecting to other people. And by the time she was in her senior year, you would recognize her. She was the center of the whole entire campus, our student center. She was the mother. People would come to her. She would pray with them, love them, make it her holy hour. A completely different person, but the person who I saw whenever we had our first conversation, I said, this is this is who you really are under there, but you don't see it. But it took me and others seeing her, and she became this vibrant, joyful personality. If I show you a picture of the smile of this young woman's face, you could see the joy that comes from her. And so she began listening to the Lord in prayer, and then now she's a religious sister. She knew the Lord loved her so much, and it was because... Before, I'm not worthy of doing this, or I couldn't have recalled. And I'm not saying everybody who's loved is going to become a sister or a priest. I'm not saying that. But the transformation, the hope that was there. Another story is from a young woman. And again, I said I dealt with this a lot. This is a young woman who, I don't know, I've been doing this long enough. I, I, could, I could spot it. I'm wrong sometimes. But came in, and she was this larger-than-life sorority girl, personality, talking to everybody. 
trying to, to gather everyone in, and I could tell, oh, no, that, that's too much. There's, that, that she, she's looking for attention. She's working with others, not out of her gift, but out of a need for attention. And we were scared of me at first. But then finally, we had an encounter where I can't read anyone's soul, but I'll say, what's the real deal here? I mean, what's going on? This is all BS. This is just a facade. And she broke down crying. I like to say, I have the gift of tears. I can make people cry. Because <laughs> I saw through it. I said, this is a facade. This is not who you are. And she told me, Father, when I was younger, I was raped by my boyfriend. Sexual trauma. Much more common than you think. And that was the point. I was the first person she had told. And I said, I'm so sorry. This happened to you. It's not your fault. Because she's blaming herself. There's nothing, nothing you did. It's not your fault. And the Lord still loves you. Let's begin healing. And so she began to go to therapy, began seeking direction. All of a sudden, became a completely different person. It's still a journey. We're also on a journey, just like this other person I was mentioning who's a religious sister. She's not perfect. But the joy and her ability to see others and to spot shame in others became so much more effective because she was no longer living in shame and found the healing that she needed. And it takes a lot of courage. Very rarely does a woman who's a victim of trauma or a man who's a victim of sexual trauma even more willing to talk about it. But you've got to bring it to the light. The evil one tells you, no, keep it in the dark. Now, do I think you need to bring it into the light on the Internet? No, I'm not saying that. You gotta find a safe place. But if we are not confident and pure, we're not gonna be safe places for people. And so, of course, I didn't have to report this because she wasn't a minor. Y'all are dealing with situations that you're gonna have to be mandatory reporters because they're minors, and that's a difficult situation. But the healing that came from it, not only from me, but from Jesus, from others seeing her and saying, you're not defined by this. This is not who you are. You don't need to be ashamed. You're awesome. Minister out of your personality. And oh, wow, it was unbelievable. And the last story was, I'll tell, and this is, I guess, a bit longer one, was a young woman who I knew had some emotional dysregulation. Uh, most college girls have emotional dysregulation. <laughs> I mean, it's how it works. But I come to find out that she was a product of a broken family with a mother who has borderline personality disorder. And so she just grew up with drama and all kinds of stuff. And so because of her brokenness, when she was in high school, she began acting out sexually with other girls and hiding, not telling anybody. But the shame just keep piling and piling and piling on. She finally got to college. And, and her image was, I'm a holy, sweet girl. I'm great. Look how holy I am. I want to follow Jesus. But there was a deep brokenness there, which finally you came out. Like she started dating boys and wasn't working out, and then clandestinely sort of dating girls and, and really struggling with her identity. And I'm the one who saw it. She came to me. And it was a struggle for her. It still is a struggle for her years later and she knows that i don't think this is good behavior i said i don't you live with it. said you're living with thomas with shame that goes much deeper than this but you know what i still love you i'm not giving up on you and i'll walk with you to the end 
as we're going to talk about, how important it is. You're not defined by this. You're my daughter. I'm your spiritual father. And we're going to work through it. And so when I had first asked her if I could share her testimony, she said, yeah. And she, she, she wrote something. And I'm going to share it, which I think is touching and, and, and she speaks a lot to me and, and, and the way the Lord's used me. She said, Father Sibley's unconditional love and acceptance of me over the years, whether or not I was in a same-sex relationship or not, has been so incredibly impactful for me. No matter what, he never wavers, never judges, never leaves, and always wants to visit and spend time with me. That's what heals my shame slowly over time and keeps my heart open to the church. His consistent fatherly love for me and others in the church is what, if anything, will help me to convert my heart back to the church, not doctrines, not teachings, not fear and guilt tactics. Again, she's, I'm not saying that doctrine and, and teaching is not important, but it's, I see her. She's my daughter. That's what she is. She's the father's daughter. It's not all this other stuff. Regardless of whatever ways that we seek our identity, at the core, this is what's most important, and that's what we are equipped to see. And so, yeah, we're, let's wade into, I'm not going to get very deep, into what we face today, particularly in, 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 in all-girls school. Struggle, young people, when I was in high school, people were wearing their goth and their stuff. In the 90s, they were wearing their grunge. Today, the issue is a result of a lot of stuff are the LGBT issues. And young people who are confused about their gender identity. And there are a lot of tension over this, and I'm sure you all have encountered it. And I tell you, when I started teaching as a priest 20 years ago, my, my specialty is in marriage and the family. We didn't discuss any of this, you know, Gender theory had begun really in earnest in the 90s. I was studying early 90s. I was studying the late 90s. But no idea in 2020 this would be on the horizon. Probably look back. I could have figured it out. But it's a real issue. And, and I teach sexual ethics now to seminarians. And in the first class is, listen, fellows, yeah, we're going to study the meaning of the body. We're going to study the morality of sexual acts. But the fact of the matter is, the discussion today is not about action, but about identity. This is where the discussion comes in. And there's a, a long reason why that is. It goes back into philosophy and, and social thinking. But what happens is, is before we could say, this type of action isn't good. And people would be like, all right, I agree with you, I disagree with you. But now, when we say, this kind of action isn't in accord with the meaning of the body or with the tear teaching. You hate me because this is who I am. And so this is how do we talk about this? How do we maintain the truth about the dignity of the human person and what we understand the body to be and who we're created, but still be able to reach young people, other older people, who are often very broken. And it's a complicated issue, and one, I, you should not be engaging in on social media. It's going to get you nowhere. Um, and, and it's hard because people on both sides don't want to listen. They don't want to talk. They just want to 
point, point the finger, play the victim, do whatever it is. We're going to have to have some discussion here about how to move forward in a pastoral level. And, and I think as a school, it's, or as a church in a school, it's, it's easy to think about policies. What are the policies going to be? What kind of policies are we going to enact about how we're going to talk about this, how we're going to treat people? And I'm not saying policies aren't important. We have to have policies. But the problem is if we don't go beyond policies to see the person. The young person here, particularly the young woman, who for whatever reason is struggling and is conflicted and is suffering and, rightly or wrongly, doesn't feel safe or secure. And from my experience, nine times out of ten, even though there can be biological roots and genetic roots, the issue is often much deeper, much deeper. Um, and I'm going to get into all that right now because I want to talk about more of just the, the, the deeper issue. These, I see a lot of the times in these struggles, are similar to other struggles that I've seen people go through. It is a sign of a person who's broken, hurting, and filled with shame. Sometimes for what they've done, sometimes for things that have been done to them, or for whatever reason. But you, you won't know what the reason is until you encounter the person. I'm not a big fan of any type of label. It's not, regardless of what it is. You, the label I'm going to put you is your beloved son or daughter. All of this stuff, uh, that doesn't matter to me. You may want me to, I'll, I'll be nice to you, but this is what we're trying to drive at. It's the same thing. It's an individual who wants to be seen, known, and loved. And our main duty is not to get into theological debates, even though theology is important, but it's to see and to help young people establish their core identity as beloved children of God. It's a parent's main identity. Hey, you know, think of all the stuff that we go through. We're all broken. We all have our stuff, whatever it is. But that's not what defines you. Your relationship with the Father is what defines you. And he still sees you as a beloved son or daughter, regardless of how you identify, what kind of hobbies you have, what kind of self-destructive behavior you might be in. Regardless, you're a drug addict. Guess what? The Father still loves you. You're a drunk. The Father still loves you. And he's calling you to this integral development. So ask yourself, is this type of behavior good for you? Is this really who you are? And so, in a certain sense, we don't need, a lot of the times it's right in front of us, the people who are hurting, but sometimes we got to look on the peripheries. It's not really very clear, particularly at school. Um, and we've got to be able to reach out in prudent ways to be able to say, I see you, I love you, I care about you, and to help them belong. And so the, the seeking for an identity is, is seeking to belong. And we all want to belong. But to say, hey, you can belong here. There's a deeper type of belonging. Uh, I was, and again, I'm speaking more about just the LGBT issues, but I was asked to, to sort of give some consultation about this. And I remember, Father, look at these policies. Uh, look, policies are great. That's not going to solve the problem. What are you doing to see the young people who are broken and in need of attention? Are you going on the peripheries? And so I gave the example of something, I forgot what it's called, but I remember reading about it. And this 
big city public high school. We all remember, how many went to public high school? All right, like three of us. All right, awesome. <laughs> Uh, but even then, maybe big Catholic high school, they were the kids who always ate alone for lunch. Always ate alone for lunch. And, and, and we don't want to talk to them. And this group would go out every lunch and would sit with those kids, try to get to know them, invite them to belong. So the same way, the issue is not about any of these periphery things that were there in the 80s or 90s or 2010s. It's about that need to be seen and to belong. And we all have the ability to do that. But we got to be able to pay attention to be able to love and see them purely. And so my suggestion was to, to, to do this. Don't get caught up in all the fighting and debating. That's not going to get you anywhere. Or even the slogans or whatever. Hey, you know the kids that are on the periphery that are hurting? Invite them. Hey, look, we're going to get together. We're going to have a little group or a club. I don't know what you'll do. Of course, there's a safe environment. I don't know how you're going to handle that. But to make them feel that they belong in one way and to help work to root their identity in Christ, in the Father, in the church, it's not going to solve all the problems. But, I mean, this is it. The church has to be a place where people feel safe and belong. We still have to follow the rules. We still believe there's certain teachings, and we're not going to adhere to that. We're not going to deny that. But it's, we can all still love people and welcome them. Some are going to run. Some are going to reject. Some are going to play the victim. Some are going to attack you. Some you're not going to see. And you can't force it, but we can still be there to say, I still see you. The Father still loves you. At your core, this is who you are. And so it's going to look different in different situations. And in a college campus, it was easier for me to do because everybody was 18 and above. But it's what Pope Francis calls the art of accompaniment. We're going to accompany you. I'm going to journey with you. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and actually, like Jesus, have a moral discussion with the woman, the Samaritan woman. That discussion may come up. Came up with a woman called an adultery. So I'm not saying it won't, but we're walking together. I'm with you. I'm in solidarity with you, and we're not just meandering. It's not the war. The, it's not the 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 art of hanging out and wandering around. It's sort of journey. We're going somewhere, but we don't know we're going to get there. We don't know how difficult the passage is going to be. But the fact of the matter is, I'm with you every day. I'm taking those steps, and as high school teachers. You have that opportunity because you are going to see these kids every day for, for four to five years. The small steps that you take, I see you, I, I notice you, this is who you really are, this is who I, I'm going to treat you. And to make them feel they belong and they're seen, even in their brokenness, can, I'm going to fix all the problems, but it can bring a lot of healing. And to let them know, I'm not, I'm not giving up on you, we're going we're gonna to make it through this. It's going to be a long journey. But by the time you leave, hopefully there'll be a transformation. And five years is a lot of time to make an impact. A lot of, you know, granted, they may go back to their friends who are unhealthy or their family who's unhealthy. But all you can do is plant the seeds. All you can do is plant the seeds. But in order to be able to do that, we have to be doing our own work so that we can be instruments of the Father's love. Make sense? So what I want to do is, is end, or kind of end, with another longer quote from Father Jacques Philippe. He's talking about 
fatherhood, specifically priestly fatherhood, but it applies to all of us because when we love, as he said, we're, we're mediating the eyes of the Father. And so he, he sums it up better than, of course, I probably could ever sum it up. And, and it's a long quote, but I'll, I'll go over it, and, and I think you'll understand what he's trying to say, what I'm trying to say. He says, all of us, whatever our errors or wounds may be, must feel welcomed and loved as we are. The Father never has an attitude of rejection, disdain, hardness, or judgment against another. He even has a special affection for the smallest, the poorest, the most hurting. He has a limitless patience founded on hope, hope. He believes the other even when the other doesn't believe him. I would dare to say that a kind of unconditional hope is one of the aspects of this unconditional love. Are we people of unconditional hope? I'm not giving up hope that you can know who you are and know the Father's love for you. He continues, it seems to me that there is a beautiful and deep dimension of fatherhood, and I'll add motherhood, never losing hope for those whom God confides to us as children, whatever may arise, whether it be your physical children, your spiritual children, the children you have in your class. Never giving up hope. Keeping a hopeful watch on others obviously isn't easy, but this hopeful gaze is a source of life. The gaze of the Father, our gaze which mediates his eyes, is a source of life. The Father, through attitude, words, and the watch he has on those who belong to him, belong, must not discourage but always be encouraging, helping them to believe in themselves and in their possibilities. In spite of their frailties or errors, he must never give them a negative view of themselves, but instead demonstrate trust in them. I trust you. This doesn't mean that the father is freed from helping others perceive what they may be harmful or sinful in themselves. It's sometimes necessary to admonish, even to punish. Only the truth sets us free. But this always must be done with trust in God's mercy, which is greater than any evil and in the hope that good can come from it. To be a father, our mother, our teacher, our friend, our priest, means sometimes hoping against hope. Which is to say, I may have a thousand reasons to lose hope in my child, but I hope nonetheless. A thousand reasons to give up hope in you, but I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. And that's essentially what we all need, to know that the Father, that someone doesn't give up on us. And so regardless of what people struggle with, whether it be the LGBT issues, whether it be drama issues, I don't care what it is. These are things that need to be addressed. We can be honest about it and see the person. But at the core of it, we all need and want the same thing to know that someone sees us knows us and loves us not just on our 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 walls or the identity we put forward but beyond that to see the heart to know we're beloved children in whom the father delights to know that there's someone there 
who's not giving up on us. It conveys that attitude of the Father and is tremendously healing and transformative. So I, I want to end with, I guess, a little prayer. So because I work with college students so much and a lot of women, I, I used to go to Instagram and then I just think it's stupid. I don't know. I like looking at pictures of cute animals, but I got other things to do. So people send me stuff. And so one of the Instagram pages that uh, I was introduced to, and I think that there are other iterations of this on social media, is a page called, let's see who knows this, Wholeheartedly Han. How many of you know this page? H-A-N, not like Han Solo. Star Wars fans, sorry, not Han Solo. Uh, it's, it's an Instagram page, but I think she has an Etsy page or whatever. Uh, the woman is a young woman, she's maybe 25. Her name is Hannah Flowerbaugh. F-L-O-W-E-R-B-A-U-G-H, wholeheartedly. And this woman can write some litanies. Everybody loves the litanies these days. She had the litany of humility, which is not that easy to pray. We have the litany of trust from the Sisters of Life. This lady has a little book of litanies, and really, it makes, you can get it, and, and she'll sign it for you and send it to you. And she has posted some of these on her Instagram page. Some of you are probably pulling out your phone and looking up right now. It's fine. But I, I want to close. I've given talks before where I ended with her. Her, uh, I'm, not, I'm not getting paid by her, so I'm not <laughs> doing that, but I just love it. This is, she has all these interesting litanies, and this is the litany of the scene. The litany of the scene. And so the little response, uh, the first part, is deliver me my Jesus. So you can pray it out loud. I'll read the, the response. I need my glasses to see that, but I don't know. We'll put the brightness on. And we'll just kind of maybe end with this little litany. So you can, the first part is deliver me Jesus and help you with the second part. From the unnecessary race to be noticed, deliver me my Jesus. From entitlement to others' attention and time, deliver me my Jesus. From looking outward for all found within, deliver me my Jesus. From pride and useless vanities, deliver me my Jesus. From overvaluing externals, deliver me my Jesus. From undervaluing my soul, deliver me my Jesus. From forgetting you as my maker, Deliver me, my Jesus. From idolizing validation, deliver me, my Jesus. From neglecting to glorify you through me, deliver me, my Jesus. From anchoring myself outside of you, deliver me, my Jesus. And so the next little response is, my Jesus, anchor me. To receive rejection with peace and joy, my Jesus, anchor me. To accept being forgotten, picked over, and left out, my Jesus, anchor me. To recall my identity is kept with the Father, my Jesus, anchor me. To start community over competition, my Jesus, anchor me. To deny the desire to prove myself, my Jesus, anchor me. To appreciate but detach from praise, my Jesus, anchor me. That you welcome all of me, and will my best, my Jesus, anchor me. That I am valuable to you even when unpolished, my Jesus, anchor me. 
that my value surpasses a stamp of approval, my Jesus, anchor me. That you truly see who I'm made to be, my Jesus, anchor me. From a heart resting secure in the Father, my Jesus, anchor me. For a heart embracing its own poverty, my Jesus, anchor me. For a heart so taken care of, it may freely give, my Jesus, anchor me. For a heart so at rest, it may humbly work, my Jesus, anchor me. For a heart so close to yours that it may reflect your own, my Jesus, anchor me. So I think it's a beautiful prayer. She, she has a lot of those. And, and of course, it's talking about we've got to be anchored in Jesus. And only when we're there are we then able to communicate it to others. Um, and that's what we're called to do. So um, we'll close with a glory be, and then we have a few moments before we're ready to start Mass. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.